Paul. And I'm Grant. Before we dive into today's topic, please remember to uh, share the link for this episode with your friends so that other people can discover uh, our wisdom and inane ramblings. Uh, make sure to tag us in any posts you have on Facebook and Instagram at The Atypical Rainbow. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us on the ACAST website. Just use the search engine and look for The Atypical Rainbow. This is an episode in the series Spectrum Analysis. So the title of today's episode is Hell is Other People. We're mostly going to talk about how difficult it can be for people with autism to interact with others, particularly in an environment like the workplace, where you can't pick and choose who you interact with. Yeah, so this, I have a follow-on question from our previous episode. So if you haven't listened to that, you should go back and listen to it. It's very good. In our previous episode, you talked about the fact that people at work didn't believe you had autism before you got the diagnosis. So I want to ask you, what changed once you did have the diagnosis? Well, I guess I'll talk about the initial reception. So I announced it at a uh, one of our weekly staff meetings, just as a casual side saying, by the way, I had been diagnosed. And it was all very positive and very supportive and saying, you know, it was good that I went and, and got the diagnosis and that I, f- I feel better for it. Because that's how I announced it. I said, I feel this is a part of me now. I now know and understand myself better. After that, the response was overall fairly positive, but not significant in any way and not in a bad way it's just it didn't really affect my day-to-day operations because COVID actually ended up creating some really big positives for me from an autistic perspective so the first thing that happened was my boss uh, said to me look it's probably a good idea to just report this record this in your employee record because it may not come up now but in the event that for whatever reason something happens in the future it provides some context and I went that makes a lot of sense to me so I you know uh, notified my HR people and that was kind of the end of it because again it hadn't really impacted my day-to-day functioning at all but what COVID did to, for my work was that it actually uh, forced me to work from home so I only uh, work with telehealth now and what that has done for me on a personal level is it's meant that I'm just not interacting with people as much as I did before. And that's awesome. Like, I just, I really enjoyed the fact that I don't have to have these social interactions with people who I like. Like, I like the people I work with, but we're just not friends. Like, we just, we don't have a lot in common. We don't talk about day-to-day stuff. We, we just don't have that kind of relationship. And it means that I can be on my own, you know, most of the time. Interacting with patients is a social activity for me because I always think about the fact that, for me, I have a finite amount of social energy. Now, socializing isn't just about hanging out with friends. It's about interacting with anyone else. And so interacting with patients expends that energy for me. But being at home allows me to recover that sort of energy. So either between patients or before and afterwards when I'm just spending time writing reports, for example, I'm mostly by myself. You know, you're, you're hanging around, but you have to go look after the kids and do other things. So it's just me being by myself and restoring the, the used energy that I have. And that's actually made a big difference to my overall mood. Because often I'd come home from work and just feel really exhausted, like just worn out. And part of me thought maybe it's a physical thing, maybe it's the labor of being at work. But what I discovered was that it was the act of having to be in a workplace that where I had to interact with people that I may not have necessarily chosen to interact with. And that's vastly different from, you know, choosing to go with friends or going to a trivia night or, or whatever. That's That doesn't, although that uses my social energy, it's not as much of an expenditure as what working would be. So I found that the diagnosis 
Oh, and announcing the diagnosis to my employers probably didn't have any direct impact, but COVID actually, oddly, blessed me with some really big positives. So would you use your diagnosis as a reason to not go back to on-site? Yes, absolutely. If, if it came down to it where work were insisting that I had to go back to work, um, which I, I've, I've heard that a lot of workplaces are insisting on, even though on a practical level, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, but yeah, I would probably use that and cite that as a reason for, um, for me choosing to stay at home. Uh, obviously supported by the idea that I can continue to be productive and that I'm willing to make exceptions where the exceptions are necessary. Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully, uh, from an op- on an operational level, our uh, organisation has actually thrived um, with the introduction of telehealth specifically. So we're more productive and having a greater reach for patients, say, in rural areas who mm. wouldn't be able to travel out to our main office. It's, it's made their ability to access our services much better. So there's a lot of organisational incentive um, for us to remain using telehealth as much as possible. Yes. Oh, yeah, I think because you're not the local doctor it probably is very convenient for your patients. Yeah, exactly. I think it would be different if I was working in private practice. So, for example, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm about to start work in a transgender-specific GP clinic, and they've insisted that I work on-site. They haven't really given me the option of telehealth at all. But, as you said, it's because I'm meant to be helping the local community and getting to know them. So, in that respect, that kind of is a necessity for me to be there face-to-face. Yeah, I have to say, I spend a lot less time sitting in waiting rooms now that the doctors have gone to telehealth, yes. <laughs> even though they're local. Yeah. But it is a bit harder when you have a physical ailment and it's a phone call. <laughs> it is and it isn't. I think that this, what COVID and telehealth have done is it's forced medical practitioners out of their comfort zone. But for those of us who have looked at it from the outside. And I say that mainly as a, a GP educator, so someone who has taught junior GPs. What I've realized is that actually the physical interaction isn't always completely necessary. A lot of the diagnosis comes from taking a good history. So if you know the right questions to ask and you can get a patient to describe it well, it actually covers about 70% of what you need to know to reach a diagnosis and create a management plan. The last 30% will be things like rashes, where the physical mm-hmm. appearance can be hard to describe. I was thinking skin cancer checks. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you don't have the vocabulary to be able to describe it, okay, there are certain limitations. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we can never truly completely switch to telehealth. But we have technology now. We have videos and we have video conferencing. We have the ability to send photos through email or text or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of supplements that can be utilized in order to um, maximize the the doctor-patient consultation. But a lot of doctors are still like, I don't trust it. They don't trust the technology. They don't trust that they're seeing the right thing. Um, And so they'll insist on people coming in physically. Whereas... um, you know, the, the one of the key examples of where telehealth has been really beneficial is if you're, like, sick with a cold, for example, right? And mm. COVID, obviously, it was designed for COVID. I, I was thinking when I had the flu in Ballarat and I had to spend the entire workday, the first of my workdays I had to take off for being sick, waiting to see a doctor to get a medical certificate to say it was okay that I was waiting to see the doctor. And then I needed to take extra days to actually recover because I spent the entire time sitting in a waiting room rather than being in bed. 
Exactly. So if you'd had telehealth, or particularly mm. video conferencing, I think, because I think some of the hesitation on in that particular example would be people just claiming that they had a physical ailment without necessarily the evidence to back it up. Mm. But video conferencing could certainly prove that, you know. Um, or sometimes people will come after the fact, so they'll be like, I had gastro yesterday, I couldn't go to work, I'm here today. So even if that person came in face-to-face, mm. you still wouldn't have any physical evidence to prove that they had it. You just yeah. kind of go on their word that they described it in just the right way. Mm. So I think that, um, yeah, telehealth has made a big difference for a lot of people from an access point of view. Yes. The funding of telehealth is a bit of a different issue. Yeah. Again, I think it's a question of how it gets used and and related to how it gets abused. Well, yes, but I think what uh, one of our problems that we've come across is that Matthew hadn't seen their GP for long enough that he can't get telehealth Medicare. And she's not seeing patients face-to-face, which is the only way to get him back into getting Medicare telehealth. But that was a response to um, some, let's call them enterprising individuals. Yes. Who set up phone consultation GP practices out of pharmacies, having not seen the patient previously. And so it was a... I want to say rebuttal, but that's not the right word. But it was a response to um, these businesses taking advantage of a situation when kind of, and kind of dismissing the fact that you actually do want to build a relationship with mm-hmm. your local doctor so they get to know you. Yeah, I, I do get that, but like my my problem is the balance hasn't been found quite yet. Yeah. The, uh, because if Matthew needed to get lots of GP things, we can't get him back to getting Medicare because she's not seeing people face to face. Yeah, we'd have we'd have to like bring him in for a consultation to see another doctor, yeah. therefore being seen by the clinic, and then we could be Medicare billed for yes. the remaining consultation. Even though, you know, he was he'd gone to see her for nine years. Yeah. He just hadn't seen her for twelve months because he'd been a healthy nine year old. <laughs> yeah. That's true. So yeah, like I, I understand that people were taking advantage of the the system. Yeah. But I feel like now Innocent people are being punished. I think any inherently any change or any um, you know new regimen or law put in place will inherently cause some people to be negatively affected. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think any decision made on a systemic level is ever perfect. There was no mm-hmm. someone who loses out. Like the NDIS has been massively beneficial for a lot of people and really terrible for other people. Yes. Um. So you know it's it's hard to find that balance. But as long as there's a willingness to adjust and adapt as we learn things, and as we get more data, then I, I think we just roll with it until they figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but back, I guess back to the topic of office politics, one <laughs> of the things that uh, frustrate me uh, about office politics is interpersonal dynamics, right? So, you know, in an organisation, everyone's meant to have their role. They're meant to be able to fulfil a certain role, do a certain thing. But in every workplace I've worked, there's always been barriers. Now, some of it is skill barrier, like, some people just don't have the skills for it. Sometimes it seems to be a personal preference thing. And I get that there might be, um, uh, you know, inherent limitations. So, again, my autism would would be a defining thing that means that I don't really feel comfortable going back into the workplace. But sometimes I kind of think, it's your job to do this. Why aren't you doing it? You know, why can't you just make this work? And then... They're like, well, I don't want to do it, or I don't think it's my role to do it. But well, then whose is? Because the task still needs to be done, but no one's willing to take responsibility. So then it falls to the people who are kind of, oh, well, fine, I'll do it by default. 
but then they learn, they, they upskill, rather than the person who's kind of being rigid about their, what they perceive to be their role, mm-hmm. um, them going, oh, well, I'll adapt and I'll adjust and I'll make, make do because the organization needs it. You know, that kind of, that, that balance between trying to maintain a healthy compatriotic relationship, which is not a word I just made up, um, or versus kind of insisting that the person fulfill the duties that they were expected to fulfill. Yes. I, I would agree with that. It, it can be... There can be sometimes weird hierarchy things that are unclear. But I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, the, the hierarchy stuff... I'd, 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 I've always thought that a government would function better if it were a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> and sometimes... I, I, obviously, that sounds terrible, but on a smaller scale, it does kind of work. Because if you have a leader that you trust, if you know, if you feel that they are working under a very clear philosophy and if that is a philosophy that you agree with things actually go really smoothly because everyone wants to contribute everyone wants to participate everyone's willing to grow and learn but there are going to be some people who uh, in that organization who are going to be like i don't agree with that and i don't want to do it that way but is it their right to just operate in their own little bubble or should they move on like should they just be going to another job and doing something else or go to an organization that fits their philosophy better but yeah work works can be difficult like a situation i'm thinking of is like if the boss is not there and one of the clinicians is knocking off early is it okay for the receptionist to tell the boss that the clinician's knocking off early yeah Again, because it suits it suits the narrative because it, it suit, they don't they're not affected by it they're just following the rules that that work within their belief. But mm. as soon as I, I feel like I'm being deliberately vague, I am being deliberately vague. But a lot of the issues I've had in in various workplaces has often been about um, whose job it is to do the menial tasks. That's often what it comes down to. It's all the little crappy stuff like the the who does the letters and who does the filing and you know there is an assumption that there is an admin person whose role it is and yes you know admin people will often take on that role and not to say that there haven't been some amazing administrative people I've worked with some really responsible intelligent intuitive people but there are some who are just very fixed in what they do and very insistent on their role and and sort of an unwillingness to adapt with the organization particularly if the organization itself is evolving. I think just an unwillingness to to move beyond their role or doing it their own way or feeling that they should have um, autonomous control over their section rather than kind of adhering to work philosophy. I think that 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 I struggle with because particularly if I were in a boss position, I'd be like, why aren't you just doing what you're told? Like, can't you just do the thing and and work within the parameters that we've set out? Mm. Nah, like yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Weirdly, my thought was the exact opposite, where it's like. The problem is if no one's sure who is ultimately in charge. Are you talking about your time in kindergarten? I was talking about my time in kindergarten where the like the government said that the president's ultimately legally responsible for everything. Yeah. Um, but the director wanted to be in charge of everything, including doing things that the print the president would then possibly have to go to court to justify the fact she did them. Well, let's let's put in a bit of background because I don't this this system might be a bit different. I can't remember if we've explained this in previous. It's a episodes. messy system. Yeah. So ex- explain the context of the the kindergarten governance system. So the kindergarten governance system assume like makes the assumption that you can make a committee of volunteers out of the parent base who would then be in charge of the actual paid staff. We can't pay anyone to do that job. So it needs to be a volunteer who then is in charge of the staff, but also legally responsible for what the staff do. Yes. 
Which, yeah. Is insane. Which is a bit insane. But it does create this sort of two-head thing. Like, some sort of weird two-headed monster. And what happens if the two heads are fu- who disagree on how things should be done, then it just makes a very messy monster whose arms and legs are just flying around. And part of the issue there is inconsistency. So the director's going to be there, because the director's usually a teacher, mm. the director's going to be there through all the years, whereas the yeah. president will usually disappear within about two years at like, at the most. Because they're Depends child- on how many children they have. Exactly, right? Yeah. Depends on how many children they have. But, yeah. And what the gap is. Sometimes they disappear for a year and then come back. Yes. But there's no consistency. So yeah. there's nothing to say that the director couldn't just undo what the previous president had done, which they yeah. didn't like, um, but might have benefited the the kindergarten itself. But I guess if they undo it the next year, then that president is legally responsible for it, not the one who was there, who originally did it. Like, the original, if the original president does the right thing, then they never have to answer for what was done during their tenure. Mm. Whereas the next president, they're not doing their job well enough, which... It's a bit difficult when, you know, you assume the director knows what they're doing. And yeah. You kind of just give them the benefit of the doubt, but then they do something that you're then legally responsible. It's really messy system. How did you feel about all that conflict that you had with the director when you were kindergarten president? Sometimes I still think about it at night. Mm. Like, yeah, like even, what are we, like five years later, mm. I will sometimes think about it and go, mm, I can't believe, like that was so annoying. Mm. And also, I think, because the kindergarten, from the outside, seems to be struggling more and more. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, well, they, if they listened to me when I was there, they wouldn't be struggling. Or at least that's my assumption. <laughs> <laughs> but what, 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 what dwells on your mind? Is it how the director behaved, how you behaved, or just the interaction itself? Do you kind of replay it in your head? Um, I think... I think what re- replays in my head is the feel... like that I tried to be a peacemaker and it didn't work in the end. So the energy I wasted being a peacemaker when I could have just... Charged through like a charged, bull. Charged through <laughs> like a bull, I guess. Yeah, the fact that my strategy failed. Mm. Like, I, en- I ended up in, yeah, a situation... Like, I got what I wanted temporarily. Mm. Like, you know, but once I was gone, I imagine it got reversed. Yeah. But I can still say, you know, for that year, I did the right thing. Um, and I can feel good about that. But the fact that I spent a lot of energy trying to have a good working relationship with her, that ultimately, I guess, when she didn't get her way, was going to fall apart anyway. And I could have just not wasted that energy. Yeah. There is, there is a, that, that kind of frustration in futility, because I also default to peacemaking. I don't like conflict. It just, mm. I, I'm, I often do that thing where, I'll in the moment, I'll often just default to kowtowing or trying to keep the peace, and then afterwards I'll be really angry at myself. Or I'll think, oh, I should have said this thing. I'll think of something really clever or really, like, biting, and, like, mm. I wish I had said that. Whereas in the moment, I'm a freezer, you know. They, they talk about the three the three states of stress, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. And I'm, I'm a freezer, for yeah. sure. Um, and it makes me so angry, which is why I avoid... Co- I, avoid I don't like um, uncertain social situations, because I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to be, and I'm going to waste all this energy trying to figure all it out. I'd rather just not interact with you. Okay, yeah. cool. Away I go. Um, yeah, but I can, I, I, I can see how, yeah, trying to force yourself to be the peacemaker, particularly if you feel the very strong emotion of rage or frustration or disappointment or whatever it is, it's mm. exhausting. 
Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that comes from being in the middle, even though, like, technically I was legally in charge of the, you know, kindergarten. I, like, there was the, you know, Department of Education above me. So it's not like I was at the top. I'm not the Prime Minister. Mm. <laughs> and I think with you as well, it's kind of like... Because we talked about a point where we're like, would you actually want to own your own clinic? Because then you're in charge. Yeah, and I, I'd come to the conclusion that owning my own clinic would be all well and good, except um, having watched a number of people uh, who own their own clinics, watched their lives, I just wasn't interested in it. Yeah. Like So again, when there was a responsibility that needed to be done that no one wanted to take, they would often take it upon themselves. Mm-hmm. So they would um, work longer hours, take on you know business management things that they may not have been educated not or equipped for. Properly. Not pay themselves properly. Not pay themselves properly. Very small business. Right? You know, just all these extra responsibilities because some people just kind of felt, oh, well, I don't want to do that. Mm. And look, don't get me wrong, if your contract or if your job description explicitly say that you weren't required to do that, okay. I'll give you that. You were you were given clear expectations. It's only fair for you to execute and enforce that. Mm. But if it's kind of broad or if it's kind of within your purview, you should do it. But again, it's that kind of... How do you ask someone to do something if you're not sure if they'll do it, but you know it's necessary? You know, it's that kind of time pressure, that need pressure that I couldn't yeah. handle. I guess, I guess the, the flip side of that um, is there are people who... If they keep doing a little bit of extra, they start end up doing like two people's jobs, but they're not being paid for it. Yeah, and it it can be a slippery slope, but again, benevolent dictatorship. If yes. I was if I was the benevolent dictator and I saw someone was doing more than their fair share of work, I would look at that and go, Okay, we need to fix this. Mm. Like this is not okay. How do we resolve this? Who can we get on board? How do we divide up the um, the tasks so that you are doing some of it, but then you're passing on some of the duties to other people? Yes, and I think that's... The, the problem is, from an employee point of view, you don't think that your employer is a benevolent dictator. <laughs> yes. Yes. If you could trust in your um, employer being a benevolent dictator, you'd probably be willing to do those extra tasks. See, I, I had that with my last boss. And even, actually, my current boss, I would say, is a benevolent dictator as well. But... I, I felt I was more willing to do more for them because I'm like, I can see how you're struggling. I can see that you're trying. If I can help, I would like to help. And that was... Yeah. But maybe that's But you were higher up in the ranks than yeah. admin staff. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I remember at my last clinic, um, we were trying to change over clinical software. So the clinical software is where doctors take all their notes and how they order their tests. And sometimes... Uh, actually, often it's tied into the appointment-making software as well. So they, sometimes they have two separate programs, but often it's all one and the same. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a big push from a lot of the doctors to move to this, to update our program to a new one, because the existing one was terrible. Like, it was Windows 95 in a 2010 world. Like, it just, it was so outdated and outmoded. But there was a massive resistance from um, some of the administrative staff because they weren't interested in learning a new strat- new mm-hmm. technique. Even though the, the training would have been provided, it would have been, you know, done, paid for, they were just like, I don't want to change. And it's like, that's not a good enough reason to do, to, to avoid something. Like, if, if there is a better way to do things, you've got to put in the effort. Mm-hmm. You've got to make it work for you. Because if they'd moved to another clinic, if they're like, oh, well, I don't want to work here anymore, they'd have to move to another clinic and learn a new thing anyway. So why not just put in the effort in a place where you've dedicated your time or given your loyalty to, or where you know, like, the boss well? It just, it never made any sense to me. Do you think it bothers you more because you're autistic? Yes. 
A hundred percent. Because I, I kind of think in my head, you know, I have a certain expectation of you. Your role is this. Mm-hmm. And in order to meet this target, in order to meet this goal, you are required to change. You should do it. But I think part of it is also my medical training combined with the autism too. Because as a doctor, and, and anyone who knows doctors will know this very well, as a doctor, you're expected to know things within about five minutes. So I remember I uh, I had to try and learn how to put in an, a cannula. So that's the thing they put in your arm in order to give you fluids and medications if you've ever been in the hospital, right? You get a little bit of training during med school, but it's like within the first year or two. And then through the next few years, you get, you know, the occasional uh, training, you get the exposure, but it's not a, a daily thing. By the time you get to be an intern, you expect to do all of it. And so someone will give you a quick refresher and then that's it, five minutes. Whereas a nurse will have to do a three-day course in order to learn how to do something that a doctor is expected to know within five minutes. Now, that's really disproportionately unfair. But the, the truth of the matter is, I did it. Like, mm-hmm. I figured it out. By the time you get to your second or third year in training, you're expected to do the hard ones. Like, all the ones that the, the other, you know, cannulation nurses and other people can't do, or your intern can't do. They're like, you do it. I'm like... I don't know how to do this. Like, I didn't get taught how to do this. You're just thinking that because I've done it for a year more than you, I automatically know how to do the the tricky ones, but I don't. Mm. Like, there's just no one's taught me this, but you're expected to. And again, you figure it out because you have no other choice. So, you know, when, when you are presented with the option of changing to adapt or not changing, I kind of think... If you're being given the opportunity to learn, if you're being supported in that learning, if people are not expecting you to suddenly master it within like five, within a day or five minutes, then that's the balance. Like that's the boss going, we're trying to set reasonable expectations so that you can work with us, so that you can stay with us and we can all work together. Whereas I often felt it was more like a, eh, I don't want to. And then that was the end of it. You couldn't argue against that because if you piss people off then you have this mass exodus of people and they're like well would I rather have a bunch of new people who are trained well from the beginning but have to lose a bunch of the the other the older people mm. would I rather um, keep the peace with the older people but not evolve and not improve the way we do things yeah which I think is a hard one like it also it probably comes back to is the employer gonna give them a bit of leeway while they learn the new system and again, like, benevolent dictatorship. Yes, but as I said, people don't assume their boss is a benevolent dictator. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, the thing with how quickly doctors are expected to learn things that literally other people are given much more time has always been a weird thing for me. But also another weird thing when you come to... You're talking about just doing what needs to be done. Teachers, there is a philosophy of just doing what needs to be done. Like, in a way teachers are constantly taken advantage of. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember um, you so when you were telling me about the, um, like, just marking um, reports and exams and stuff. You mm. don't get paid for that because you get paid for the school time that you spent at school. Yeah. But you can't, don't have enough time on top of all the duties. You don't have enough time to mark things as well. So you do that in your own after hours time. Yeah. But no one goes to think, oh, you should be paid for that. It's just like, that's part of your job. Yeah, you can... Be there for a few hours a night for an information night, no extra pay. You can go on a camp, no extra pay. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever needs to be done is kind of just has to be done. And I think maybe it comes down to sort of this philosophy that teaching is a calling and teachers are willing to do these things. Mm. Whereas I think other people who think like nine to five entry level jobs might not have that same, whatever needs to be done needs to be done. 
Yeah, that that kind of um, emotional manipulation exists in medicine, but I, I I don't know how. I think it does exist in Australia, but not quite as bad as it does in the UK. So I have been very very slowly reading this book called "This Is Going to Hurt" by Adam Kay, and it's the secret diaries of sometimes the secret diaries of a junior doctor and his experiences of working in the NHS as an obstetrician gynecologist trainee um, back in the early two thousand. So whether it's like this now, I don't one hundred percent know, but he certainly talks about the idea that as a doctor you have a responsibility to work and not even just like look after patients but actually just to exist so one of the examples he gave was he had planned a five-week holiday with his boyfriend uh somewhere overseas right so it wasn't like he could just pick up where he was nearby he could just go work a shift within a few weeks before he's due to leave he gets a phone call from hr and they're like uh we need you to work uh, this weekend. And it was right in the middle of his holiday. And he's like, I'm going to be overseas. Their response was, maybe you just come back to England for a few days. So it wasn't even just, oh, we'll, you know, allow you to do it. It's just, they're like, you have no choice. You have to work. Because the alternative is that there is no doctor cover. It means that someone will be unwell or may die if you choose to say no. And that's like, that's a massive responsibility to put on someone. Again, in Australia, at least in the Victorian system that I've experienced, that's nowhere near as bad. You know, you are rostered first, second, third on call, but if you're on annual leave, that is your annual leave. It is protected, and that is your time. Well, you do say that, but there was one point where you took annual leave, and your boss said, oh, you're not going overseas, so we'll call you in, because you're not going overseas, if we need someone. Yes, that was at a private general practice. I think the, the... in the public health system, it's actually a lot better. Okay. Uh, but yes, in private general practice, I remember getting that statement and thinking, that's not okay either. <laughs> Your holiday is not worth as much as other people's holidays. Yeah, exactly. And this is, the thing is, is that I was working as a contractor at that point. So he mm. actually had no authority to do that to me at all. I could, I had every right to say, no, I'm not working. That's it. Because they weren't paying me annual leave. Mm. I was just deciding to take the time off because I felt like it, you know? Um, once again, the, the, the dynamics of all this politics just really, it frustrates me as to what, how people, ex- what people expect of you and how people like all that complicated social dynamics drives me absolutely insane. Yes. I have to say like think during this episode, I've been thinking about all my jobs and how pretty much all of them I was taking advantage of. Like what? Give us some examples. Okay. So I started working in a law firm, um, and I was really good at my work. So I basically did heaps of work, and people just add more and more work to me. Like, there was no, you're doing so much, get a pay rise, or you're, do, you're doing such a good job. Like, they'd estimate that it'll take me a certain amount of time to do things. I'd do it much, much quicker than that. And there was no benefit to me. I just got more work and more responsibilities from other people. But the argument there would be that if you were able to achieve more in less time, it depends on the amount of effort you expend. Like, if you're... Exp- well, one of the things, like... I, like, I noticed sort of working in a city office was that I would get a lot more done because I didn't go and smoke cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so, like, originally I was working in the office, um, doing some admin-y stuff, and a lot of the admin staff would go all, yeah, you go, because you're not smoking a high-rise, so you go all the, like, 15 floors down, (laughs) go out to the smoking spot, have a cigarette come back multiple times during the day. Mm. Um, And, you know, they go in pairs and chat and who knows. And then I started running documents around. Like, so my job was... 
sort of like a private career, I guess, was one of my things. And when I was being trained, I was being trained by a smoker who, like, after every drop-off would, like, stop and have a cigarette and mm. have a juice or something. Whereas when I did the job, I got everything done because I'd, like, just go everywhere, then come back, and then it'd be like, oh, you're back. Here's some more work to do. So the fact that I was sort of just doing my best and I couldn't cope with not doing my best version of it. Yeah meant that I was, I guess, doing more than my share of work because I wasn't taking cigarette breaks or juice breaks or coffee breaks. Yeah, which really does inherently incentivize people to build in redundancies and build in these smoke breaks so they don't have to do as much. Like, yes. And then I found out a couple of years later that um, I was probably also being underpaid while doing all that. Oh, good. Good. Um, and they got rid of me when I asked for a performance review out of general curiosity, because they thought I was looking for a pay rise. <laughs> oh my god. And that was after I had done, in about a year, 30 years of backlogged filing. Whoa. So basically, yeah, I had caught them up to 30 years worth filing, and they got rid of me. Yeah, they've since folded, haven't they? Yeah, they folded a few years later. My, pa- my parents at the time said, this might be the first sign that they're struggling. Just <laughs> people. <laughs> um, and so my parents were probably right. So they, mm. they did fold. And then I remember, so I worked in a hospital kitchen and there was one, so the day I particularly remember is that, so there's like two kitchen hands um, and I was pretty good. Apparently I made the best mashed potato any kitchen hand that ever met, <laughs> um, but there was like two kitchen hands on at one at any time. So basically there was a set amount of work between two people. So if you're on with a good person, there was fine. If you're on with an incompetent person, it was not fine and There was one day I was on with this guy who was very incompetent. Like, he had actually had to go to the emergency department of our hospital because he hosed down a meat slicing machine that not only had he not unplugged, but he'd somehow cut into the cord with the blade and then hosed it down, thus electrocuting himself. And he left this this giant puddle of water on the ground and I fell over and I broke my wrist because I was rushing around to make up for the fact that, you know, he was pretty incompetent. So I was doing more than half the work and he had left a giant puddle of water not cleaned up. Um, So I injured myself while doing more than my share of work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And these things, I guess, bothered me in the, in these sort of like uni jobs um, that I was doing, but as a teacher, like, some, sometimes I, you know, go, I can't believe you guys get overtime when I was hanging out with all these doctors who had made so much more money than me <laughs> and would, you know, get money for the extra hour. And I'm like, I just went on camp. I was like, with year sevens, nonstop for like five days and I got nothing. Mm. Um, I got, like, I, when I was teaching, I got given, I was like, $1,000 for being a year nine coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> Um, at a school that being a year nine coordinator was a pretty full on job. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I think the calling element of it or the, you know, it's all for the kids and it's all bureaucracy that means we don't get paid well, but the kids deserve the best. Yeah. Um, in that setting. And also the fact that colleagues were also in the same situation. Yes. Um, and they would take their smoke breaks during recess and lunchtime by driving to local park. Maybe the kids didn't see them. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think when you're surrounded by people who also have the philosophy that you do what needs to be done, mm. it gives you, I guess, comrades, so other people aren't hell. <laughs> but yes. sometimes your students are hell. But I think in the teaching profession, um, and I imagine in medicine, I guess, like among other interns and 
Like, there'd be a bit of camaraderie, like, you know, we're all working crazy hours, and, you know, we're all kind of annoyed at that consultant who just yells at everyone because people yelled at him. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's what I, I miss about working in hospitals. The one and only thing I miss about working in hospitals was the team uh, the team environment. Whereas in general practice, you're very much on your own. You're mm. making all the decisions by yourself. You, you, know, like you can run things by people, but it's a very different experience to having them hear the same story. Yeah. So, yeah. And look, just to, just to counteract it, probably to close up the episode here, it's not that all other people are necessarily difficult. I still have... I have good friends. I have people I love to hang out with and spend time with, for sure, right? But I choose that. And it depends on the environment. And it depends on the situation, if there's an activity involved or whatever we're doing. Like, there, there are lots of factors that influence the people that I... This is going to sound terrible. Don't find exhausting. Um, but I think that... When you're in a... You can only pick and choose so much, Mm. you know? Like, in a workplace, I would love to be able to pick and choose who I work with. That would be amazing. But you don't get that option. You have to work with some people that you're just not going to get along with. But you try and find your middle ground. You find the way for you two to interact as best as possible without necessarily aggravating each other. But sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes you can't choose the degree of interaction. And that's why I I just don't think I'd ever want to be a boss because then I'd be forced into situations where I have to interact with people when I don't really want to... Mm. You know, I, I some days I like the idea of working alone. Like, I like the idea of just being in charge of my own world. And some days I kind of miss the ability to share the responsibility and the task with others. Yeah. Okay. That seems like a fair enough close. Cool. Uh, thanks for listening. Don't forget to share uh, the links, share our uh, handle at the Atypical Rainbow on Facebook and Instagram. Do all the good things so that other people get to know us and uh, find out we exist. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you next time.